<laughs> there we go. We're in Hebrews chapter 5 this morning. Hebrews 5. One of the most, um, one of the most important things really that Hebrews does is teach us uh, about how important doctrine is, our theology. Uh, doctrine has fallen out of favor in the last several years. It's been falling out of favor for a long time in our culture, both outside, of course, but also inside the church. Outside, it's considered arrogant at best to believe there is absolute truth, right? Unless it's your truth, uh, that this is right and this is wrong, because, you know, who can say such a thing? And then the idea that Jesus proclaims that there's one ultimate truth, which is him, that controls and shapes all other truth is not welcome. At the very least, we're suspicious of such a thing, suspicious of such claims. But surprisingly or not, depending on who you ask, doctrine has fallen out of favor inside the church also. There are several reasons for that, but one of the main reasons is that doctrine divides. It, it doesn't bring people together or, or so the criticism says, and the Bible calls for unity. So we have to stop clinging to anything that gets in the way of unity, including doctrine, theology. And of course, as, it, as, as is often thought, um, doctrine doesn't really help anyone anyway. We need something a lot more relevant for our needs, our immediate needs. The Bible disagrees with all that. It just does. What we believe matters. And of course the truth divides. Of course it does. Jesus did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He didn't come to make everything nice and sweet. He brought a sword. A sword that in Hebrews is able to discern both the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He brought his word. These people were in immediate danger of falling away from their faith. And the answer for that, according to Hebrews, is doctrine. A very specific doctrine. The truth about Jesus Christ as the high priest of his people. And the core of Hebrews is the author unpacking, if you will, the Bible's teaching about Jesus as our high priest. That's exclusive to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's exclusive to a letter that's all about endurance. Isn't that interesting? That's its function. And that is the main way the author tries to stop them from turning their backs on Jesus. Because if we turn our backs on him, there's no one else that can get us home. And so he's made reference so far to Jesus as our high priest. Now he'll begin to explain it. And the official argument begins in the first part of chapter 5 this morning by answering two main questions. How can Jesus be our high priest? And what does it mean for us if he is? Beloved, Jesus is our high priest because he loves us. Not because he had to be. Not because he was obligated to us to be. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me as we'll read what is, I think, the heartbeat of this text, 7 through 10, but we'll walk through verses 1 through 10 together. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... 
he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth and consistency and power of your word. I thank you, Father, so much that um, the contents of this sermon, any sermon, are not dependent on what I'm able to come up with in my head for your people. Father, the, the, the truthfulness, the usefulness of this sermon is 100% dependent on your word, on your grace. And Father, I thank you and I pray that you would be with me as I preach. Lord, that you would help me, that you would control me, that you would overtake me so that uh, I do not get in the way of what you're saying to your people in this passage. Father, I pray that everyone would be able to listen. Lord, I pray that you would stop the enemy in his tracks this morning as he tries to steal this word from our hearts. I pray that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so, these first four verses, we go back to the top of the chapter about the ministry of a high priest. Just what do they do exactly, right? Because we need to get a very precise answer to that question, what do high priests do, if it's going to have any real meaning for us, if Jesus is a high priest for us. Look at those first four verses for every high priest notice four kicks it off so it's following out of chapter four for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to god to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the word for in verse one connects the exhortation at the end of chapter four about coming to the throne of grace with confidence in 416 to the description of what a high priest does. In other words, the privilege we have to come to God's throne with confidence has everything to do with how perfect of a high priest Jesus Christ is for his people. What do high priests do? They act as basically go-betweens, so to speak, between humans, human beings and God. They act on behalf of people so that people are able to relate to God. They do this by offering gifts and sacrifices for sins in verse 1. So under the old covenant system, a high priest was a kind of agent between God and Israel. They're appointed by God in verse 4 to take gifts of worship, offerings, and to offer sacrifices that people give to God as a payment to cover their sins. At that time, the high priest then offers them up to God on their behalf, gifts of burnt offerings, grain offerings, fellowship offerings, thank offerings, all of that was provided for and sacrifices for sins, which were burnt offerings, sin offerings, restitution offerings, the offering on the annual day of atonement. So people could not offer these things up on their own whenever they wanted, however they wanted. Sin created a breach between us and God that was so wide 
we are completely helpless to cross it ourselves. So what we're learning in that sacrificial system is that forgiveness is not going to come cheap. It's not going to come easy. After all, God has stated very clear that, it, that, that he will by no means clear the guilty. So something is going to have to happen. Forgiveness of sins is a gift of God that he grants to human beings. It's not a payment that human beings can give or earn. So there has to be this go-between, between between, uh, appointed by God to do this for them. That's what a high priest does. God appointed the line of Moses' brother Aaron, who was from the tribe of Levi, for this specific task to be the high priests in Israel that could stand ceremonially as a symbol in that gap between earth and God. Those high priests were human God made it so that the high priests that act as the go-between for God and humans then could identify with the people that needed their ministry, right? So a high priest wasn't someone who could take pride in his position or look down on those he made gifts and sacrifices for because the high priests were humans too. They were sinners. All the high priests in the line of Aaron were as much the descendants of Adam by blood as the people they ministered on behalf of were. That's the common bond they shared with everyone they offered up gifts and sacrifices to God for. They were sinners too. The high priest was as obligated to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for his own sins as much as he was for those on whose behalf he ministered in verse 3. So ideally, a high priest was able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people who were full of weaknesses because he was full of them too. Which means all the high priests before Jesus weren't appointed to that office because they were special or more holy or righteous than anyone else, but because God desired to build a relationship with people, to bring them into his rest as we found in chapter 4. High priests were given to God's people under the old covenant to reveal God's desire to be close to them. That's what high priests do or did. They acted as go-betweens for God and human beings by offering up gifts and sacrifices to God on behalf of people so that people can get close to God. They can't take that position for themselves, right? Signifying maybe that humans cannot just find their way back to God on their own. A high priest has to be appointed by God. That's what the line of Aaron was for. That's what high priests do. Now, what does it mean then if Jesus Christ is one of those? And how could he be if they only come from the line of Aaron? Jesus was not from the line of Aaron. So the stage has been set. The first four verses have put all the necessary pieces in place to describe Jesus as our high priest. Read 5 through 10. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If any of the high priests from the line of Aaron 
could have actually reconciled us to God, could have actually brought people close to him, we wouldn't be reading this right now. There wouldn't be any need for any of this. And yet, the audience he is writing to were thinking of going back to that framework between God and people, Aaron's framework. They were being tempted to return to the old way of relating to God through ceremony and ritual. This is what we instinctively crave. There's something very attractive and comforting about having a line-for-line system of boxes you can check to know that you've done what you needed to do to be forgiven or to at least have it covered as a symbol of it being forgiven. We like that very much. Because I've done A, B, and C, God will give me one, two, and three. That's what we want. That's what we like. That's what was so appealing about that. The prop that, in other words, wanting to go back to that old system had such a strong pull to them, just as it was having in Galatians, because that's what we want. That's where we default, right? It, it, it's so much more comforting than walking by faith and not sight, right? Walking by sight is much easier than walking by faith. Being able to track my progress is much easier than placing all my faith, regardless of my progress, in someone else on my behalf. So the pole is always strong. The problem is that the old way is insufficient. We'll find later it doesn't actually cover sins, forgive sins at all. It's insufficient to cleanse our conscience, we'll find. It's insufficient to reconcile us to God completely. It's just insufficient. And yet we crave it. We want it. They did, right? If, imagine, um, imagine two people, a young man and a young woman, madly in love with each other. Just madly in love with each other. He joins the military. He has to be deployed, okay? And before he leaves, he gives her a picture of himself to remember him by, right? I, I want you to look at this all the time. Think of me. When you see it, know that I love you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes away and he ends up being away a lot longer than he thought he was going to be away. And every single day, she did exactly what he said. She loved that picture. She fell in love with that picture. She looked at it, talked to it, sang songs to it, all those things, wrote on it, sprayed her perfume on it, whatever girls do, right? All those things. Well, he gets to come back. And when he gets back, he runs to her. He runs off his ship. He runs to her. And he goes to hug her and she says, whoa, 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 whoa. This, just hold on a minute. This is too weird. I'm not going to be able to do this. Why? He says, well, because I'm, I'm, I'm in love with this picture of you. Right? I'm in love with this picture of you. Now, if you saw that happen, you'd think she was crazy. You'd think she was crazy. I'm going to keep this picture. I, I don't want to be with you. I know that you are the substance of this. I know that you're the essence of this. And really this picture was pointing me towards you. But I just love this picture. It has so much meaning for me. Right? I'll always have it. You can't take it from me. Right? You, you see it. You see that That's what they were doing. They're in love with the picture. They're, they're falling out of love with the substance. They're in love with the picture. We are tempted in the same way. If it's not the Mosaic law as ceremonially and ritually dedicated as it was, as it would have been to them, it's some type of system of justification by works. It's some type of system we can control whereby we can feel like we're close to God, but it's not the substance and it doesn't work and it doesn't last, but it pulls so strongly it required a letter, at least one. I don't, beloved, don't 
fall in love with a picture when the substance has come. Hebrews is here because Jesus is the only high priest that can actually fulfill the essence of a high priest's job. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the go-between, if you will, the mediator between us and God. He offered up perfect gifts. He offered up the perfect, the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we have the word so at the beginning of verse 5. What does it mean if Jesus is a high priest? It means the people on whose behalf he ministers are safe. They're reconciled to God. They're forgiven. They're justified. They're loved. And nothing can overturn or undo it. That's Hebrews. That's the essence of this letter. Why would you go back when Jesus is better? Jesus wasn't just some really good guy that lived on the earth, who decided one day he wanted to be a high priest. Nor, interestingly, nor was he stuck with being a high priest because that's what the descendants of Aaron do. God made sure that Jesus did not come from the line of Aaron. That's not why Jesus is a high priest. He wasn't one out of presumption, nor was he one out of obligation to people. Jesus is a high priest, first of all, because God appointed him to the office by sending him, begetting him into this world as a son. That's the purpose of Psalm 2-7 in verse 5. How does God appoint his son to be a high priest for humans? By sending him into the world to become a human. So, Everything that Jesus did, from becoming a baby in Mary's belly, to rising from the dead and ascending back to the Father, every single thing that Jesus did, said, was how God made him our perfect high priest. So he is our perfect and sufficient high priest first, Because he was appointed to be that as God's son, which then gives way to the second reason. He is our perfect and sufficient high priest because he is in the order of a man named Melchizedek, not Aaron. The explanation, the deeper explanation of this comes later, I think in chapter 6 and 7. But he introduces the idea here simply to explain that Jesus is not a high priest like Aaron. He's not one by obligation. He's not one by descendancy. That's why the author referenced Psalm 2-7 in verse 5, which actually says nothing about Jesus as a high priest, but instead speaks of him as a king. Melchizedek was a high priest, but not just a high priest. He was also a king, and he lived in Genesis long before Aaron did. Melchizedek doesn't have an earthly order of priests that come from him, yet Jesus is of his order in the sense of the nature of his priesthood. That is, Jesus is not only a high priest, Jesus is a king, and Jesus will be those things forever. That's Psalm 110.4 in verse 6, because Jesus will rise from the dead. And in verse 7, this high priest's offerings, remember verse 1, were his prayers and supplications which he offered up with loud cries and tears all through his life. The days of his flesh, as the scripture calls it, it, his whole life. It it doesn't mean that Jesus' whole life was just crying in tears, but neither then does it mean that it's only referring to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
But it does mean that suffering and sorrow were a regular experience for Jesus and that his whole life was lived in absolute dependency on God. Jesus lived such a genuine life of faith that much of the time when he prayed, he cried out to God and it was loud. This was him being a high priest for us. That's what he was doing his whole life. We, we tend to only look at the cross at Calvary. Right? I'm not saying that because of the song. It's a great song. But we only tend to look at the cross as where Jesus was being our substitute. Beloved, he was our substitute his entire life. Right? Not just his death, but his life of righteousness. His life of offering up what a high priest does in order to be a go-between. That's all him a high priest for us. And it wasn't like he just offered up the choicest gifts or performed the rituals better than any priest from Aaron's line had. No, everything about the life of Jesus was a gift of pleasing aroma, like an offering to God on our behalf. You see, Jesus isn't just there to forgive us of our sins. Jesus is there to perform our obedience for us, to offer up the offerings that are pleasing to God for us. He's your savior in every conceivable way, both because you are a sinner and because you cannot be holy enough to live well enough for God to accept you. He's a high priest for us all the time. He lived the life of Utter devotion to and dependency on God that we never could. And he did it as a high priest. He did it on our behalf. In his life of dependency on God, he lived out every single thing that the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fellowship offerings and the thank offerings were pointing to, were showing that were needed. And God heard him, all of it, because of his reverence in verse 7. God accepted all those gifts from our high priest because Jesus offered them up in perfect reverence to God. Not as a job or a task because of his family bloodline, but because he worshiped and loved God his Father perfectly. But also, beloved, when you consider Jesus, consider this. God did not answer his prayer of deliverance from death in verse 7 by enabling him to avoid the cross. Right. He answered those prayers to save him from death by raising him from the dead. Which means that Jesus is a high priest who didn't just offer some ceremonial sacrifices on our behalf, but became the sacrifice, a finally a sufficient one, when he laid down his spotless life and shed his untainted blood for our sins. That sacrifice was so perfect that no other sacrifice for sins, including yours, will ever be required. The office of high priest stops at Jesus. It can't ever be better. Nobody can improve upon it. Stop trying to die for your own sins. God is not interested in your money, your righteousness. He's interested in the righteousness and reverence of Jesus Christ on your behalf. In verse 8, Jesus, even though he was the very son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. What is happening in this verse with Jesus learning obedience? 
it's something totally unique to Jesus, first of all. So this is not telling us that like good little boys and girls, we also have to learn to obey God whose obedience is the point of the text, not ours. If, if you switch that around and make all about, you've, you've ruined the text. This is about the obedience of Jesus, not us. The context for Jesus' obedience here is related exclusively to his office as a high priest. This isn't about us. Notice the period in the sentence doesn't come after he learned obedience. The period in the sentence comes after through what he suffered. Jesus had to learn obedience because Jesus wasn't a sinner. He had never been disobedient. Right? That We're not like that. So Jesus learned obedience, not by correcting the sins and mistakes he had committed previously. Jesus learned to obey specifically through what he suffered for us. By coming, by coming to earth to die as a sinner when he had never sinned, Jesus had to do something he had never done, suffer. That was his obedience. The perfect one learned how to become a perfect high priest for his people. To relate to their sufferings through the life of faith. This was something he could not experience unless he became one of us. He learned what it meant to be a human who had to trust God in this world. And our high priest was also beset with weaknesses. Not because of his sin, but because of his suffering. Our high priest doesn't identify with us because he too was a sinner Our high priest identifies with us because of the intensity of his sufferings. The suffering he endured living a life without sin. Of constantly and successfully resisting every temptation. We can't imagine the weight of that. Does does temptation to sin ever make you feel insane? Like it's pointless to even try to be a Christian? Just the temptation of it? It just never lets up, never stops. If it's not here, it's somewhere else. Jesus resisted all of it all the time. Right? Just that, 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 in other words, it's not less weight on his back. It's constantly more weight. He's just resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting. Beloved, to the end, do you know why? Because we won't ever do that. And you have to be perfect to stand before a holy and righteous God. Constantly feeling the weight of living by faith, right? We don't really think of Jesus like that, but that's how Hebrews reveals him. Constantly remaining completely devoted to God in every single way, never missing a beat. Constantly loving and serving people that rejected him. That hurts. That hurts, right? And he felt it all the time. And through all of that life, and through all of that, live the life you and I could not have ever possibly lived. Jesus Christ felt more of what it means to be a human than any of us ever could. He bears the image perfectly. Never gives in to temptation. Always bears the likeness of his Father. And this is the life and the death he offered up to God as a gift to him. And as a sacrifice for us. And that in verses 9 and 10. That. All of that. Made him. 
the perfect high priest for us. Not only did he live in perfect reverence and devotion to God, but he never once, not one ounce, succumbed under the pressure that breaks all of us every single day, somehow and in some way. And because he is a perfect high priest, he is the source of eternal salvation. Not temporary salvation, so long as you hold out. Eternal salvation for all those on whose behalf he ministers. Every son he means to bring to glory in chapter 2, verse 10. All of Abraham's offspring. He will bring them all. So, to believe that something still remains for me to do, some sacrifice, some offering, I must give in order to secure my salvation is to blaspheme the sufficiency of Jesus as our high priest. Beloved, the salvation the Bible describes, the salvation that Jesus bought is eternal. You don't get eternal life and then lose it. If it's losable, it's not eternal. And God creates the categories. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Of course we would. We're not winning. Jesus is winning. But because our high priest is perfect, every single person that obeys him, which we find in Hebrews, we find in Romans, that is, submits to him through the obedience of faith, possesses eternal salvation forever. That's the salvation that Jesus purchased. There's no other salvation Jesus gives but eternal salvation. Again, I lived my whole life until I was about 22 years old believing that you could lose your salvation. right, And that you had to get it back if you lost it. Until, of course, you had lost it too many times and he wouldn't take you back anymore. You know, you know what that did to me? Made me a hypocrite and a sinner and a terrified human being. That's all it can do. Right? Either Jesus Christ is 100% responsible for our salvation or none of us are getting saved. Right? And if, look, you, people continue to argue that. That's fine. Take up your argument with Jesus Christ who purchased eternal salvation, not temporary salvation. Right? It just, that's, that's the way it is. Right? That's the way it is. Yes, that will divide. Of course it will. Grace and works, never shall the two meet, beloved, for salvation, ever. Aaron could not do that for us, right? When one died, another one had to step up because the work was not done, right? Just they, they couldn't do that for us. Their sacrifices, I mean, the, the blood could run knee deep. It, it didn't matter. You, you don't appease God by, well, you know what, really... I guess if you've offered 35,078 sacrifices, then I'm appeased. No, no, no. Heaven is eternal. Hell is eternal. Why? Because God can't be exhausted. Right? I mean, neither his salvation nor his condemnation can ever be atoned for from this side. He's too good. He's too great. He's too amazing. He's too high. He's too holy. He's too great. He's too great to be reached from earth. Unless there's a high priest in between us that won't die, whose sacrifice is perfect, 
whose gifts are perfect, and that just said, if you believe in me, I'll give, I'll credit all of that to your account. That's all there is. That's all there is. Or there's no salvation. No human being, no matter how noble or religious, from Adam could ever do that for us. And we most certainly could never do it for ourselves. Jesus, the point is, is a different kind of high priest. He's also a king. right? He reigns over something. He's from the order of this man named Melchizedek. So he's not just different. The author's saying he's not just different from what came before him. He is infinitely better. All those who come under this Jesus live under a new priesthood. Jesus is my, our high priest for sinners. And the new way is far better than the old. Why? Because this high priest gives eternal salvation. That's what he's mediating. There needs to be no repetition of his sacrifice for us. To be saved over and over and over again. The text will say that's like you're crucifying him every time. It's saying your sacrifice was not enough. It's trampling his blood under your feet. Come home and rest. It's secure. It's secure. It's eternal. He's perfect for us in every way. Better in every way. He is a priest forever. Now think about that for a minute. As long as your high priest is perfect for you, you are acceptable to God. He is the source of eternal salvation. Meaning he is perfect for you and I forever. For all who truly believe in Jesus, your salvation will last as long as Jesus is a high priest. Which means, on the authority of God's word, salvation will last forever. Because the king will always be the king. The priest will always be the priest. Notice you and I are not the source of that. right? We don't put in on it. You and I are not the cause of that. Jesus alone is the source and cause of such salvation. The author and the finisher of our faith. The one who began and completes the work he is doing in us. Not by synergy. By monergy. He saves. I do not contribute Those who believe in him for salvation are as safe as Jesus' priesthood is eternal. And here's the thing I, I think the text is pushing so hard for us to see here by breaking it down the way that it does. Maybe this is one of the things to see that the high priesthood of Jesus is not a job that he fell into because he came from Aaron. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to, to demean the priesthood of Aaron. That's not really what I'm, I'm trying to do. It's not that. I want to exalt that of Christ, not demean that of Aaron. But there is a qualitative difference here. The high priesthood of Jesus is not a job he fell into because he came from Aaron. It's a saving mission he chose to go on in submission to the will of his father. That's something different. Jesus isn't a high priest because of his bloodline. He's not a high priest because he was born into a certain tribe and that's the family business. That's what you were going to do. He's a high priest because he loves his father first and foremost and he loves the people on whose behalf he ministers. Nobody will ever deal more gently with us than Jesus. Let me say that again. 
Remember, if the yoke isn't easy and the burden isn't light, it isn't Jesus. If it breaks the bruised reed, it isn't Jesus. All right, nobody will ever deal more gently with you than Jesus, your high priest. Jesus is our high priest because he loves us, not because he was obligated to us. So, of course, then, we should draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. He's just building an argument for that through the doctrine of the high priesthood of Jesus. Why? Because you are genuinely loved. So come to the throne of grace. See how that flows right out of chapter, this teach flows right out of chapter four. The Bible, God's wisdom in the scripture is so immense and calculated. He is there for us so that we can relate to God directly through his son. Our, our son, our sin kept us from him. And Jesus, not only the priest, but the sacrifice for us. He acts in this capacity on our behalf. He wants us to draw near. Everything Jesus did, he did so that we could finally draw near to God. Hebrews is going to tease that out so beautifully. What kind of love is that? What kind of love is that? And remember, God demonstrated this love while we were still sinners. God does not love you based on what you will become. He loves you. He loves the version of you that you were when you were against him. He he didn't love the cleaned up, put together version of us that we're all trying so hard to be. Absolutely. We all are. We're all trying and we won't rest. He loved the version of us that had technically earned only his judgment. He loved us while we were still against him. All the author is trying to do to convince us is just convince us of just how close Jesus is to us. And we're discovering he's there because he wants to be. He wants to be my high priest. So the very nature of God's love, which again is part of the essence of who God is, is that he loves before he is loved and he serves before he is served. That is the salvation that Jesus has purchased as a high priest for all who will believe on him, regardless of what you are and regardless of what you have done, regardless of what you're currently doing. It's not, I'll love you if you come. It's, I love you, come. Why? Because there's merit in us? No, the point, there isn't. But there is in Christ. And he is not just there. He is a high priest for us. So everything that role was showing was needed through the line of Aaron. Jesus has come to be forever perfectly. This is indiscriminate. Like you're young and you're trying to find your identity. You don't know what you want to do with your life. And you have friends and you have peer pressure. There's Christ for you. There's identity in Christ for you. Life is going to beat the tar out of you. 
You need a foundation. You need a priest to stand between you and God. That's the only hope you have. And there is one who is there forever being perfect for you. You see, you're old, you've lived a long time, life didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to. Not everything went the way that you wanted it to. And you're not nearly as perfect as you thought you'd be at this point. There is Christ for you. A high priest offering up the perfect sacrifice, the perfect gifts, heard because of his reverence. You see, they were heard under Aaron because God had prescribed a system and if they followed it, all right. Jesus was heard because he was perfect. Because he loved God so much. And because he did, you and I will be heard by him, even though we don't love him that much. It's just, it's, it's good news. It's good news. Come to, come boldly to the throne of grace. Do you believe this? That's the question that matters this morning. Do you believe this? I didn't ask you if you agreed with it. I ask you if you believed it. Do you believe that you are loved by Jesus Christ? That he died for the you that you wish you could forget? He died for you while you were like that. When the only thing you could contribute to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. That's where God loves. Because that never changes. Did you know he loved you as that? Beloved, you are beloved. Remember, that's not my term for you. That is his term for you, believer. Did you know that, sons and daughters of God, all you who believe on him this morning already, and all of you who will Do you know what the Bible says to you when your faith is failing, when you start drifting, when you start doubting? What does the word of God have to say? Stop. Come back. Because Jesus became one of us so that he could become our perfect high priest. So that he could live the life of perfect obedience and faithfulness that God requires. See, that's already been done for you. And so that he could then offer up that life as a sacrificial gift to God on your behalf. His whole life saves us. This is the gospel. So don't drift. Don't stop believing. Come back and believe. Or believe for the very first time. And the salvation granted to you is eternal. Because Jesus is a high priest forever. The gospel for the saved is the same as the gospel for the unsaved. Jesus is superior to every other savior. He is sufficient where every other savior will fall short. And he loves you and I. As that substitute, as that mediator, as that go-between, he is the one source of eternal salvation for all who obey him by believing on him. What Jesus gives in the gospel lasts as long as he does. Because he is both its source and goal. So call on Jesus Christ this morning. Now. Call in this perfect high priest who stands before God forever on our behalf. Cry out 
to Jesus Christ. He knows how to hear cries. He cried. The front will be open as we sing. I'll be here. If you need to pray, I'll be here for you to pray. If you want to pray alone, you're more than welcome to. If you want to join our church, be a part of what we're doing. If you believe you want to be baptized, you're free to come this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest the perfect gifts, the perfect offerings, the perfect sacrifice necessary to obtain eternal salvation forever for all who will believe on him. Praise to your holy name, O living God. Praise your Son, praise your Spirit. Be exalted in our midst, we ask and pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Dismiss us in prayer in just a second. Remember, we will gather again tonight at 6.30. All right? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for this time that you've given to us by your grace. We thank you for your son, for his perfection, his sufficiency. Lord, I pray for your peace and your mercy, the light of your truth, to be sent out to lead every person in this room. Lord, care for them, watch over them in every way, every family, every person present, every story. We ask and pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.